My name is Bayan Rice. I'm a third generation wine grower, and I've been making wine for over two decades here in Santa Barbara wine country. It's more than a job, it's a calling. Join me as I talk to my fellow winemakers in a series that is a candid conversation between winemakers discussing their wines, their craft, and their lives over two glasses of wine. Hi, I'm Brian Rice, and welcome to Two Glasses In. I'm here with Brian Babcock um, of the famous Babcock Winery, and I'm honored to have you here today, Brian. Thank you for it's, being here. It's, it's great to be here. Um, I usually find in these kinds of things that if the guy who's asking the questions is also a winemaker, <laughs> yeah. it keeps it interesting. That's what I was thinking, too. Um, in the concept of this show, we were really looking to bring some of the friends that I've had over the last two decades to the table yeah. and talk about our region, talk about our styles, our right. philosophies, yeah. but also get to know you a little bit better. Sure. Something sure. I may have not known about you before. Right so we're two glasses in. We've been uh, talking about a little bit of politics of wine and uh, possibly some of the more you know winemaker geeky stuff that some right. people may not need to know. Right. So, but today I was really hoping we could talk about you and sure. what drives you and your passions. But before we get there, maybe you could tell me that story I heard about stealing substrate from UC Davis Vineyard. Oh, my first wine. <laughs> okay, so it's probably one of the craziest experiences that I've ever had in, in the wine business. And it was right in the beginning. I was at the University of California, Davis, studying enology, viticulture. You know, sitting in a lot of classrooms, looking at a lot of chalkboards, and it was all very interesting. But I wasn't really getting my hands on anything, you know. I wanted to see some fermentation, right? And I had noticed in one of my VIT classes that in some of the student vineyards, at the end of the year, they would get all their data, they would do all their teaching, students would learn everything about farming, but, and then they would cut the fruit to the ground because there, there's just no commercial destination for the fruit, right? So um, it's better if the fruit's gonna rot, it's better to let it happen on the ground than up in the vine, right? And so I walked past this one block one day and I, I'm like, well, what's with all this fruit on the ground? And I asked the assistant, he goes, oh, we're done. We're just done with it. You know, we've got our data. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, thank you. So I called my buddy who was uh, a friend of mine when I was an undergraduate. Okay, at Occidental College, we were in the same fraternity together. So I called, I said, bro, get over here tonight. We are going to make some wine. We drove over, it was like midnight, we drove over to the student block where I knew the fruit was with this big, massive trash can. <clears throat> we had to hop over a, a fence, right? But the fruit's just right there on the ground. So we're just, you know, putting fruit in the trash can and just loving life and everything's <laughs> cool. And then off in the distance, we actually saw, you know, the, the, the student vineyards are kind of, you know, north of the campus, so they're out there ways. And at midnight, there's nobody out there. But then all of a sudden, we saw this, this headlights, kind of heading our way, but nothing to be, you know, too alarmed about, right? Um, and then we got up to this fence, and I realized I probably made my first uh, winemaking mistake because this trash can now weighed like 250 pounds, <laughs> right? And we had to get it up and over the fence. And so... You know, we just took a couple deep breaths. We got it up and we sort of got it nestled on the fence, teeter-tottering, and then we lost control of it and then we went flying. And the next thing I know, we're like on the ground, wallowing in grapes. And the, those headlights that I'd seen off, off in the distance were actually getting closer and closer. And then sure enough, they pulled up like oh, right, right next to my car. 
and so we went from like love and life to like <laughs> completely freaking out. And then how old were you at this point? Twenty-two. Yeah. Right. And uh, so then we hear the car doors open and close, and then we see flashlights coming toward us. And we're on the ground, and it's sure enough, it's the police. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? And the guy's like, hey, uh, you know, he, and they're freaked out too, because they, you know, there's, here's these guys on the ground wallowing in, <laughs> in grapes out in the middle of nowhere at midnight, right? And they're like, hey, boys, um, what are you doing? You know, and then I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, uh, so I introduced myself. Well, hello, officer. I'm, I'm Brian Babcock, and uh, I'm a graduate student here at the University of California. And um, um, I'm working on my master's. And uh, I made a mistake in the lab. And uh, I've got this hyperactive enzyme that comes from Denmark. And it only lasts 48 hours. Uh, you know, and, and, then it, and then it's un unusable, and I just got my, my enzyme, super expensive. And he's and, like, what are you yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, in the middle <laughs> of my trial, I made a mistake, and now I need some more substrate. He's like, what? I go, I need some more grapes for my trial. I go, why else would I be out here at midnight? And he's like, he looks at his partner. And uh, so the guy goes, you know what? Uh, that's a pretty good story. So I'll tell you what. Um, me and my partner, we're going to drive around the block. It's a big block. It's 144 acres. And it's going to take us about five minutes. And we get back and you guys are still here. Then you're going to come with us. And we're going to take you oh, man. downtown. Right? And if you're gone, then, you know, have a great day. So the guy leaves, and I just frantically start scooping the grapes back. This time, we've, we figured it out, put the trash can on the other side of the fence. Uh -huh. And so, you know, I'm just scooping up everything, mud, dirt, rocks. And Ted's like, what? Are you, let's get out of here. I go, come on, Teddy. Put, let's go. So we got like half a trash can full and then hightailed it out of there. Well, I made it back to my uh, apartment. And uh, then I made my second viticultural mistake in my life, which was to take my crop and put it in my bathtub, which was also, really? my, shower, which was also my shower. And which was, you know, we're gonna, it's gotta ferment. You made a bathtub wine. Yeah, bathtub wine. And which was fine until I realized I can't take a shower now. <laughs> <laughs> For two weeks. For three weeks. Right? Oh man. <laughs> And uh, so it was pretty grisly. The wine turned out horrible. Ted came back a few weeks later, you know, just to taste it. Uh, there were so many fruit flies in my apartment for like two weeks. <laughs> I, I could barely see the walls. Ted came <laughs> over. He's like, what, is this how it's supposed to be done? You know, the wine was horrible. But he was, he was just a great friend. He said, you know, he goes, Babs, he goes, just look at the bright side. You got nowhere to go but up. <laughs> Babs, I love that nickname. <laughs> So this wine, I brought this wine because it's such an expression of the county and what's happening in Santa Barbara County. For the last 20 years, I've been in the Santa Rita Hills mastering the classics, and now I'm stepping outside and going to some of the nooks and crannies of the county to see what's going on with some of these exciting new varieties. So this is a blend of a couple of Rhone varieties. Most people, if, they're, if you're a wine drinker, you've heard of Marsan or Roussan or Viognier or maybe even Grenache Blanc. This is a blend of Grenache Blanc and another grape called Claret. So Claret is one of those less heralded 
as of yet unknown whites on the, the Chateauneuf, the authentic list of white varieties from Chateauneuf du Pop in that area of the Rhone. I mean, there's also Bourbalanque. Uh, we are actually going to receive some peak pool this fall. Wow, we are really geeking out right now. Yeah. That's so, so rare. Very, very few people know about these This varieties. could be the, the only blend of its kind on the planet right now. I mean, there are those producers in the Rhone that consider it to be authentic if you have all the varieties in the blend. But to have somebody just take the Claret and the Grenache Blanc and put them together, it's not automatic. How many white varietals are there in a Rhone wine blend? What's the maximum number? Do we know? Well, if it's the Chateauneuf list, right. uh, I think there's eight grapes. Eight of them? Okay. Because Chateauneuf is, what, 13 grapes? Somewhere Overall, in the- including the reds, right. something like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's Picardin, who's also white. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's one other one. I can't even remember the name so of it. So how did you get access to Claret? I freaked out one day when somebody told me Martian Vineyard had some planted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I, I, I was thinking I might not see a Claret in my lifetime, right? I was looking at the Chateauneuf list thinking, well, why aren't these grapes here? You know, Viognier is here. Why isn't Bourbalanque here? Maybe because it's weird and nobody can pronounce it. I, I don't know. And um, then lo and behold, you know, Tablas Creek actually did bring in all of right. them when they, they brought in this, the, the, the invasion of the new Rhone varieties mm-hmm. into California. So they've been at Davis for a while. There just hasn't been any interest. So then um, I found out, lo and behold, Martians got some. I called them. I said, can you part with a ton of the Claret? And they're like, yeah, you're interested in Claret? I go, yeah. You've planted some Claret? I mean, really? Yeah, I would love a ton of that stuff. So sure enough, I put the juice in a barrel, I ferment it, and there's that moment, there's always that moment, you know, you're walking past the, you're so curious, right? It's the first claret I've ever made. What's that smell like? And you go past it, you put your ear on the barrel, oh, it's still fermenting. And then you neck, tomorrow, you walk past it, you go, eh, it's still hissing, it's still fermenting. <laughs> and then you go up to it and say, it's silent, it's done. And you know, if you grab your thief, there's gonna be a couple inches on the surface that are clear where the yeast is starting to fall out. Sure enough, I grab my thief, I put some in a glass, and I smell it, and I'm just like, why does nobody care about this grape? It was so unctuous and so laced with fruit and texture like, uh, like Simeon, right? That's why this wine is so textural. And then provides there so the solvent that the Grenache Blanc now can just explode because Grenache Blanc is very aromatic in a more linear way. It just explodes out of this thick claret and I'm so excited to now if I, with peak pool coming, it'll just be another tool mm-hmm. in the toolbox, right? To take this blend and continue to trick it out. So that's the idea behind galvanized synergy. It's the idea of using the development of the county viticulturally to try to take synergy of the varieties in the glass of the blend, take synergy to the next level. So I'm the galvanizer, right? <laughs> yeah, you are. And the synergy, <laughs> the synergy is right there. So tell me about this Pinot. Um, I'm really excited to taste this. It's called Deja Vu 2017 Vintage. I, I brought this wine to drive home the concept and the idea of terroir. Uh, this wine is so earthy and so expressive of the soil that it's grown in. So it's a small block of Pinot at the spectacular Bent Rock Vineyard over on Santa Rosa Road. And this block has, from day one, has just been making these wines that just, they just express themselves a little bit, you know. It's just like another level, another layer of earthiness and complexity. And it's kind of very specific every year. So you really get the feeling that the signature in the wine is coming from that dirt. 
which makes it special. There's a there there. That's what it's all about, right? Yes. So many winemakers are terroirists. You know, they're very much about capturing the Absolutely. essence of the site and the bottle. And how much is that for you important versus stylizing the wine in the cellar? Well, when you look at Pinot Noir in the Santa Rita Hills, this is such a good conduit to the soil and to expressing that soil, right? Some varieties you want to blend, but Pinot Noir is all about expressing that dirt from that place. I mean, you can blend, you can make nice wines. Right now, my head is all wrapped around terroir, you know, and sort of this single vineyard stuff. I call the wine Deja Vu because it's grown on a little protrusion of the Bent Rock property, looking down over the San Inez River, sort of slightly south facing. And I used to, back in the day when there were no vineyards over there except Sanford and Benedict, I would just drive around over there and dream about, you know, what's this place gonna be like if there's vineyards on all these hillsides? Well, that day is now. And this little bench top where block three is at, at Bent Rock is, is one place where I would just like, you know, just stop and <laughs> drool. Like, what if there's a vineyard on that thing someday? And then sure enough, I drove up to it and it was being developed. I could see the grow tubes and the plants and the, and the grape stakes. And it was like, oh my God. And I was having this deja vu moment, like, right? There's the vineyard I've always dreamed about. I've been there before, at least mentally. And uh, then, then went into a state of panic, like, oh my God, who's doing this? I've got, I got to get their phone number because I have to work with that vineyard right there. Mm. I'll tell you what, this is beautiful now, but it tastes and the mouthfeel of the wine makes me think it's going to last a long time. It should, yeah. Good tannins, great acidity, good balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should go the distance. Two Glasses In has been brought to you by Visit Santa Barbara. There are seaside escapes, then there's a gentle crescent of California coast connecting breathtaking beaches, soaring mountains, verdant vineyards, elevated enclaves, and eclectic communities. More than beautiful, it's Santa Barbara brilliant. Visit SantaBarbaraCA.com to plan your stay. So Brian, you and I have a lot in common. We've had somewhat parallel lives in that we're both uh, legacy winemakers, right? So my family planted our vineyard in 1990. We bought the property in 1989. Right. And my dad and I laid the foundation for the tasting room together. Our first vintage was 92 with the Parker family coming in to assist us. Huh. And uh, we loved the camaraderie and sense of sharing that was so much part of the winemaking community yep. back in those days. Yep. And um, you uh, were about a decade before us, maybe even more. I think you got your start in the early 80s, uh, early 70s, actually, right? So mid-70s? When my parents purchased the property, I was a sophomore in high school, mm -hmm. 1978. And I had no idea I was going to be going into the wine business at that point. I had an appreciation for alcoholic beverages at that point, but wine really wasn't on my, my calendar. Then I started to drive the tractor and work with the vines, work with my dad a little bit during the summers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then I uh, finished out my, my undergraduate studies and um, thought I wanted to go to business school. But after, not, uh, after being denied entrance to um, such schools as Harvard and Wharton and Stanford, <clears throat> my resume just didn't quite make the cut. Um, I had no work experience at that point, so it was, it was a whole thing was kind of a, a long shot. Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. So as a default position, I took uh, my sciences, because I did have a major in biology and a minor in chemistry. I took that to the University of California, Davis, and started some graduate work in enology and food science. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that point, I thought, well, this wine thing, it seems pretty cool, you know, Chardonnay, Riesling, these things started to make a little bit of sense to me. 
And I found that, I, you know what, I like these things uh, uh, just, just about as much as I like a good beer. So it's all good. That's how it started. Tell me about your parents. So Walt and Mona were real entrepreneurs. Um, Walt was a renaissance man, as he's been called. Um, he started out, uh, he, he had a, a wharf named after him, right? Walt's well, wharf the restaurant, the, the, mom and dad had a restaurant. Yeah. Still do, my mom. My dad passed away a couple years ago mm -hmm. after a great life. Uh, my mom still does own and operate Walt's Wharf. Uh, started off as a seafood place. Now it's everything. You know, it's it's just kind of multi-layered cuisine at this point. Mm -hmm. That's down in Seal Beach, California. But uh, my dad was uh, his master craft was dentistry. He was a great dentist, um, followed by winemaker, cattle rancher. Uh, the restaurant actually was like the manifestation of his uh, very bad sport fishing habit. Um, <clears throat> and that habit then migrated, it morphed into a commercial fishing habit, which morphed into where do we, what are we going to do with all this fish? <laughs> yeah. Let's do a seafood restaurant. Uh, so fishermen, um, yeah, kind of jack of all trades and master of a few. Mm -hmm. um, and then my mom was kind of like the cheerleader and the, you know, the glue that would mm -hmm. held all this stuff together. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Same with my family. Yeah. Um, my dad was a build it and they will come. Yeah. And my mother had to figure out how to sell the yeah. products that he would build. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me I about your, your father being this renaissance man. Do you see any parallels between you two in terms of your, your spirit and adventure? Yeah, and, and I think definitely. Um, he was a little more fearless than I am, you know, he would go into so many other things. I've been very happy just to focus on one craft, really winemaking. You know, this will be what my 38th year coming up. And it's, wow. I've been very comfortable, a little bit more focused in, in that respect. But I think whether you're doing one thing or multiple things, you do need to be open-minded and you need, you need to be adventurous, you know? And I, I think that, that very much rubbed off on me uh, right now. At the vineyard, I'm, I'm doing some things with conservation that I know my dad would have loved because he was a real conservation, especially conservationist, especially up in Montana where he was doing his cattle ranching. He was also um, working with the streams that ran through his property, doing a lot of hydrology work, trying to create habitat for the trout. Mm. And uh, you know that was one of those if you know if you build it, they will come. And the trout did. And a stretch of a of a slough that had no fish in it because of the dynamics of the slough at that point. Um, you know, after he pushed the trees over and dug out chunks of the of the river and created pools and habitat, I mean, now there's fish. Now everywhere. I know why they call him Renaissance Man. Yeah. Wow. So what I'm doing in the vineyard, uh, I started off this year with about a thousand oak trees in my nursery, and we planted about half of those to this point, and uh, the other half will be going in. Hopefully, we can get them in before harvest. So you're reforesting, and I heard about this butterfly uh, habitat that you're building as well. Yes. Um, yes. Tell, me, tell me about so that. So as part of agrosthetics, which is the overall concept, the idea of uh, treating your agricultural domain as a piece of art, you know, the 100-acre canvas. Um, <clears throat> in and around the forest, we are also studying uh, different species of flowers and milkweeds, and the idea being we can paint a hillside with color if we can find the, a flower uh, indigenous or close to that likes the soil, likes the climate, kind of like, uh, you know, grapes. You know, if you're going to make great wine, you want that variety to be suited to the soil and the climate of where it's planted. Uh, looking for flowers that have extended bloom, they smell great, and they attract butterflies. And then we'll lace into the co uh, different colors of flowers, we'll lace all these uh, milkweeds, which is, of course, what butterflies 
like to uh, feed and reproduce. Do you do this because you love butterflies, or is there an actual advantage to the vineyard or your habitat that well, surrounds you your know, vineyard? Well, you know, I like a butterfly just like the next guy, just like I like an oak tree, just like the next guy. But I think our customers today, they want experience. They want beauty, right? It's just if you just have another tasting room or another vineyard, and, and like in the Santa Rita Hills, an area where things start to get quilted together, vineyard after vineyard after vineyard, you know, I think sometimes you lose some of the more natural beauty that may have been there at one, at one point. So how do you stand out? So I think it's, a, it's part of a competitive equation because I think people are, are going to love butterflies just like I do. They're going to love oak trees. I mean, I want to be able to hand my customers a map someday mm-hmm. in the tasting room. You want to go just drop off the parking lot down into the butterfly sanctuary or do you want to take the walk up to the top? through a little bit of a wilderness area. We'll redo the fencing for our deer fence, right? Mm-hmm. So that we can invite the wildlife from the natural habitat of the Parisma Hills to penetrate further down into the property. And people will go through the gate. Okay, wildlife area, stick to the trail, right? Brian, I want to go right now with a glass of wine and, and take that walk with you. And you can explain all this to me one of these days. Come soon. see it. Come yeah, see it. It's really, incredible. really exciting. Getting back to your parents, they had the vision of planting a vineyard and then they had to figure out how to sell the grapes. I understand that they started working with some of Santa Barbara's best uh, winemakers, some of the legends like Rick Longoria, Jim Clendenin. That's right. Um, Tell me about that initial first vintage with them and how that all played out. So in 1983 was really our first crop. We didn't have a winery. I was still at school. I was still at University of California, Davis, uh, trying to finish my master's. And my dad really didn't know what to do with the fruit. He didn't really have enough that he felt he needed to go out and sell it. Uh, And so he basically just gave it away. He gave Jim Clendenin the Chardonnay. He gave some Sauvignon Blanc to Rick Longoria and Fred Brander. I think the Riesling, I can't even remember where it went. Maybe Ganey took some Riesling that Mm -hmm. year. And the wines turned out spectacular. So uh, all these winemakers are very appreciative and, and, and just all this really great feedback. Yes, the fruit's great, you know, because there was originally there was a little bit of that question when you go into a new area, you know, we were out, you know, toward Vandenberg, toward Lompoc, going far enough into the cool climate. There were skeptics. There were people who thought, you won't ripen your fruit. You know, don't plant any red grapes. They won't ripen. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe some white grapes, which is why my dad plant, used the fruit salad philosophy in the beginning, you know, he planted Chenin Blanc and Riesling and Gewürztraminer and Sauvignon Blanc and not enough Chardonnay, mm-hmm. no Pinot Noir, because he was afraid, right? Well, all these grapes ripened, they were fine, and not only did they ripen, the, f- the flavors were very firm and the acids were great, so the wines were spectacular. So going into 1984, then my dad started to think, well, if I'm just a grower, then I'm going to be beholden to somebody, and I just have to hope that they, they purchase the fruit and pay the bill, and I'm not sure I want to be you know, hanging on that string. So um, let's, I think now's the time, let's get some barrels and a little crusher and let's, let's make some wine. And that's what happened in 1984. How was that first vintage when you guys sat around the table tasting your first wine? It was awesome. You know, I actually was supposed to go back to school for one more year um, to finish my master's. And I started crushing, the Gewurztraminer came in early that year at the end of August. I was still at the winery thinking I'll be at, in, back in Davis in a couple weeks. I started crushing Gewürztraminer with my dad and I forgot about school. <laughs> you never yeah, went back? Never went back. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, my advisor, you know, one of the professors called me a few, couple months later, like, you know, what, where are you? You know, 
Um, but that's fine because I've been donating wine, you know, to Davis, yeah. to the students, and everything ever since. So uh, well, and many other like things have come up since then that have made you one of the best winemakers in in America, if not the world. I know um, you've been listed in by James Beard uh, a while back as one of the top ten winemakers for small production wines. That must have been a real honor. Oh, that was an amazing honor. It was years ago, but. It, uh, it's, it's, it's good PR, so we still kind of throw that out there a little bit. It was a tasting put on by a guy named David Moore. He did it through James Beard at the James Beard House in New York, and, and David was, a, to this day, is an amazing retailer on the East Coast. And he knew product, he knew wines. He just had a tr real mojo, you know, as, as a retailer. He's just a wonderful merchant. And so he invited his top favorite small production wineries from around the world. And I was the only American at that point. So it was really wonderful to be involved in that whole process. Now the whole thing, it's like, how do you pick the 10 best winemakers in the world? I mean, it was a preference chart, right? Those were his preferences, but nonetheless, it was pretty cool. Well, your wines taste like one of the top 10 wines in Thank America, you. I would Thank say. You. Thank you. So Brian, tell me about what's going on today in your world. You have now 65 acres of grapes. You're making close to 10,000 cases. And you know, you're now you've been listed as well as one of the top 10 winemakers by the Los Angeles Times. You're really a household name in our region. A lot of people think of you as one of the, the godfathers or grandfathers of our region, even though you're a young guy still. But tell me about the winemaking styles of today that you're working on and maybe elaborate a bit on what makes your wines different. The last 20 years has really been all about mastering the classics because my backyard exploded. The Santa Rita Hills exploded. And so whereas I, I started the process in 1984, I was the only vineyard and winery on Highway 246. Now I've got neighbors on the the side of the Appalachian that we are on, there's probably 30 to 35 wine, uh, vineyards now and six to eight wineries along 246. And the same thing has happened, of course, over on Santa Rosa Road in the southern end of the Appalachian. So there's spectacular vineyard after spectacular vineyard, and it's just like I'm a kid in a candy store. Mm -hmm. And so I've been able to put together a, a, just a wonderful portfolio of single vineyard, single block, stunning pinots like the one that we're tasting out of block three at Bent Rock, uh, these, these little sites where you just find these magical pockets of soil so that you really taste the signature of that soil and that climat in the wine. And so it's been more of a process uh, of just trying to wrap my brain around that and master it, you know, and do the classics. Now I'm at a point with what's happened in Santa Barbara County overall and the, 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 the development that's popped up now from end to end, the Happy Canyon, the Lisos Canyon, the Los Alamos area, Los Olivos, it's just exploded. And so there's so many opportunities and there's, there's new varieties. Um, it's just, it's, I feel like I'm starting all over again in some ways. Now I've got just enough wisdom to be dangerous. Um, but it's nice to, you know, if you, when you see something new, you kind of, your gut tells you what you should do with it and where you should go with it. So it, I, I really feel good about the point that I'm at where I'm, it took me 10 years before I felt like I could really make good wine, you know, consistently. 20 years in, I felt like, okay, now I can, I think, 
I see the big picture. I can stylize things. I really know how I want to express myself as a, as a craftsman. And now, you know, 30 years in, now it's like, okay, yeah, we're pretty good at this. And, and now what's, what else is out there? Mm-hmm. Let's do some, uh, let's, let's start to be a little bit more adventurous again. I did the whole concept of, I'm like a kid in a candy store here in Santa Barbara wine country. There are so many vineyards to play with and we're so blessed as winemakers to be able to, to use that as our pigment and blend together, you know, really incredible wines Absolutely. from our region. Um, what would you say is the most interesting difference between Santa Barbara County and this region, Santa Barbara wine country and other wine regions in the United States? Well, the diversity. I mean, if you look at the county as a whole, um, there's so many different climates because we're close to the coast. And so as you go into the inland valleys, you know, Santa Inez or Santa Maria, or it's uh, the next county up as San Luis Obispo County. Um, in both of those counties, there's tremendous diversity. I don't know if there is another county or geographical region that has quite as much as we do. Um, if, you know, just look at San Inez where you start in the Santa Rita Hills in the cool climate and all the opportunities there. You migrate into the middle of Ballard Canyon area, probably some of the best Syrah maybe on the planet. Um, and then you go further in like where you guys are in Happy Canyon, things warm up and then there's a whole another cornucopia of opportunities mm-hmm. in varieties and different, uh, uh, different ways to farm. So um, I would say that's probably, there's, there's so many different things going on that that's probably what sets us apart at this point. You know, you go to Napa County, uh, I'm sure somebody's adventurous up there, but you know, it's still pretty much Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay. Maybe yeah. some, you know, I, I don't think that they're, I don't think that it's as maverick. Uh, I don't think it's quite the wild, wild west up there that, that, that it is down here. I would agree 100%. I think people are willing to take more risks. There's a lot of entrepreneurs coming from outside the industry, not from family. Yeah. A lot of them are yeah. even up and starting. Yeah. And the new guys, mm-hmm. just a lot yeah. of the newbies, I like, what, what are you doing again? Right. Like, Gruner Veltliner, really? You know, like something. Or Teraldigo. Yeah, right. <laughs> something that 20 years ago yeah. would have just been totally, you're crazy. You know, how are you right. going to make a living making Teraldigo? But it's like, oh, I'm going to do it. You know? That's like, right. They have to diversify. Growth. They have to do something different yeah. and not be right. like everybody well, else. It's almost the like strawberry a requirement. Vanilla, <laughs> chocolate thing is, is over. Yeah. I mean, anything but Chardonnay started 20 years ago. That's right. Um, That's right. Uh, so tell me about the camaraderie of the friends you've had through the industry uh, in the development of our region. Um, how, how has that been and how is it now? Today? Well, it started off, it was wonderful because the dozen or so winemakers that were already here when I started, they all took me under their wing. Um, they all took my phone calls in a state of panic as I tried to, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. And uh, they really kind of chaperoned me through the first few years. And those guys are still, you know, they've been my mentors and my friends ever since. Well, clearly you're a risk taker. I mean, you, you uh, risked complete absurdity in making your first wine, bathtub wine of all things. That's right. And um, so obviously you're an entrepreneur. Like your natural ability is, is you take risks. You seem to be an experimenter. I've heard stories about your vineyard and experimentation there. Maybe we could talk a little bit about like, you know, what, what drives you to be that experimenter and what experiments are you doing in the vineyard? You know, you, you, you look at what you're doing and you, you, you do it year after year if you do it the same way. And it's not an easy business. So I think at some point you're compelled, you're forced to think about what you're doing if you're going to stay in business. 
and that's really with what's driven my my current farming method. So I'm <clears throat> right now I'm, I'm the the name of the method is integrated nature, and so it's an attempt to take vitus. Vitus vinifera, the genus and the species of our, our wine grapes, trying to integrate vitus and its nature, how it grows, how it walks, how it talks, with the forces uh, that are in play. So uh, rather than vertical shoot positioning and working up against gravity and fighting gravity, we're, I'm working with gravity. There's wind, wind direction, sun, sun position vis-a-vis -vis the time of the growing season, and all these things are really trying to integrate these things uh, also with ergonomics, you know, the average height of an employee, and, you know, I want, mm -hmm. if we're going to do canopy management, I, I want it to be right here, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to have to stoop down, right. I don't want to do this, you know, I want it to be right here, and, and the way we've been able to, in, in letting the vines grow naturally, and inviting them to grow as, as naturally and freely as they want to grow, and then kind of starting this undulating movement early in the season, which we call the dance, and then culminating with this beautiful individuated cluster architecture of a larger fruiting box, which we have because growth is not wadded together like it is in vertical shoot positioning. Growth is more, more or less like this. Mm -hmm. We're placing a crop uh, higher off the ground, which then enhances mechanical harvesting because everything wiggles better mm. up at the top. Mm -hmm. So it's been a really cathartic development. But r right now, uh, at pruning my canes, they float in space on pedestals. Just it's, it's so simple. It's really quite stupid how simple it is. And I ask myself every day, why didn't I just figure this out 25 years ago? But winery, and most people don't know this, but as you know, you and I have been in this industry long enough to know you're one of the longest running wineries in the county of Santa Barbara. And um, your tasting room is located out in uh, between Buellton and Lompoc, uh, roughly halfway, I would say, on Highway 246. Yeah, right in the middle on Highway And that was where the original vineyard was, and, and you built a winery. And I was, I was there when you had your family living in the winery, and there was couches and you know, between the tanks, and yeah. your kitchen was there. You yeah. were cooking <laughs> lunch for the team, um, and so you've really seen this this place evolve. And now I understand uh, Lisa, your wife, has added on this spectacular tasting room experience with amazing merchandise. So Lisa came from the clothing business, where she was one of the best retailers in the country. She's just a genius when it comes to creating a retail atmosphere or merchandising things, and uh, she's really visionary. And so when we cut our production down a few years ago, it gave us back one of our warehouses, a 5,000-square-foot warehouse, and we gave Lisa the keys, and she's turned it into the most spectacular tasting room on the planet. It's, uh, it's kind of like mojo on steroids, uh, vintage clothing, vinyl, music, color, antiques, great wines, you know, all these all these little vignettes and areas where you can you can easily spend an afternoon just 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 checking stuff out and chilling and I have a feeling my wife would love it there. Bring her out. She'll <laughs> she'll dig it. Yeah. Um, a little side note before we depart. Um, tell me tell me about your music, your love for music, and also um, some of the names of your wines and how you come up with your names. Yeah, I mean, both my wife and I, we love music. In terms of what the music is in the tasting room, that's all Lisa's thing. You know, she puts together the playlist. I, I don't want to touch that. Because <laughs> my taste in music is a little bit more edgy, maybe, you know, a little more kind of hard-edged and, and, you know, for for what Lisa's doing, you got to have an atmosphere where right. everybody's gonna be like, "I love that song," right? Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, uh, the names for the wines. I try to capture 
conceptually something about that soil or the story in the case, like deja vu, for example, the story that led me to that soil or that block or that particular vineyard. So Ocean's Ghost, which was my estate, my best estate grown Pinot Noir, is an expression of the fact that the soils on the 246 side, Highway 246 side of the Santa Rita Hills are very sandy. And it's an old ocean seabed, basically, that my vineyard's growing in. Plus, every day, we're kissed by the breeze coming off the ocean. Here comes the ocean's ghost. Mm, I love that. So there's ocean's ghost, there's deja vu, there's, I'm about to, to release a new Pinot Noir from the Peak Vineyard. It's going to be called Opposites Attract. So it's the idea of a west-facing blonde side of the hill versus the east-facing brunette side of the hill. Uh, taking Pinot from both sides of the hill. So in that case, sort of two different terroir or Ludi, and we'll be blending those into the single vineyard wine, and that'll be opposite to track. Do you blend the grapes, or are you blending the wines uh, after producing them separately? If, if the both lots are picked on the same day, which is not necessarily the case mm -hmm. all the time, but if they're both ripe and both perfect on the same day, there's no reason to wait. If they come into the winery at the same time, knowing how great they both are, I have no problem crushing them together. You know, or so, you know, we'll do one that maybe, and then the other, you know, it's all gonna end up in the same tank mm -hmm. in the end. Right. Um, but it's, it's not like, well, you know, keep them separate because I, I gotta study that block to make sure it's good enough. They, it's the, they're very, very good blocks, so. I can't wait to try it. You can that. be a little spontaneous, yeah. Nice. We're all fascinated with what everybody else is doing because we love wine, right? Now, it's a little more difficult now that we have what? How many wineries? Over we have? 200 brands that yeah. I know of. So it's a, you know, it's it's a little more difficult to keep up with everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, people just show up at your door, you know, it's you're like you just don't have time for, a, you know, for, for for too much, but um, I still think the industry, at least in Santa Barbara County, there's, you know, it's pretty pretty open still, and there's a lot of sharing that goes on. There's really, I mean, it's 5,000-year-old craft, you know? I mean, you got any secrets, you know? It's fermentation, it's farming, and, um, you know, Lisa, my wife now, works with me um, uh, in this business, but she was in the clothing business for a while, so in the retail. Now, in that business, you don't share anything, right? Because if you if you hit on something that's like a trend, the last thing you want to do is tell your competitor, hey, put this on your floor too, because the more, more people put it on the floor and then it's over with, right? You don't miss the boat. So you don't, you're so tight-lipped, mm. you know, you don't hang out with other people in the clothing business. And I remember this Australian winemaker that showed up one day and I was so excited because the guy, you know, he's come thousands of miles. He's a winemaker. He's got a bottle of wine for me. I spent some time with him. I showed him around and Lisa's like, what are you doing? You know, give me all your secrets. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really have any secrets, but it's, it's, it's competitive. I mean, we're all competitors, but, um, uh, I, I guess, you know, we make alcoholic beverages, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, those, our product is the kind of product where, you know, you share it, you, you, you know, it's a part, life's a party, right? When you're in the wine business. One of the things I love about the wine business is the fact that it is such a scarce product. You can't just replicate it anywhere. And I think that's what gives us our unique proposition in the marketplace in terms of uh, the terroir theory, you know, uh, you can't replicate that anywhere else on earth. And, you know, we get one crop a year 
Uh, we can't, you know, it's not like right. barley or hops where you can grow it all year. Uh, you, Just call you, it in, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and so that's why I think our story is so attractive to people is that it is unique. It is rare. Yeah. And, and so much passion yeah. and love goes Absolutely. into creating it. Yep. You um, just, every fall, you just got to get in the batter's box. Like I said, we're kids in a candy store. Yeah. And we're very blessed to be in Santa Barbara wine country. And I'm really delighted to share it with you, Brian. Cheers. Thank you. My pleasure. Two Glasses In was created and produced by Rafael A. Ruiz and Brian Rice. This show has been produced in conjunction with Visit Santa Barbara. Co-produced by Jesse Lynn Perkins, Alex Blackmon, and John M. Shalafant. Sound by John M. Shalafant and music by Peter Seibert. Additional thanks goes to Brian Babcock and Babcock Winery. Two Glasses In is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. 2020 Rareworks LLC.